Hi, my name is Karanveer Singh and I'm the CEO of uh, Yego Innovation Limited. Our first solution in Rwanda is a project called Yego Moto. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup. Thank you. In most of most southern African states, I think it's safe to say um, the, the idea of the Boda Boda <laughs> is not part of daily life, certainly, and in some countries even illegal. So that's something unique in, in some respects to Central, Eastern, and West Africa. So tell our listeners, many of whom are abroad right now, what a Boda Boda is and, and, and what a sort of pain point within that culture of transportation or mobility you're, you're looking to solve. Sure. Uh, well, it's called Boda Boda, but it's also called uh, Moto Taxis here. And I think if you look at East Africa, it's got maybe four or five different names. The key area in which Moto Taxis work is what I would call paratransit. In many countries, you don't have any public infrastructure for buses. And even if there are buses, the buses only operate on given routes. And if you want to go from point A to point B, it means you have to either walk a long distance or you need to basically wait for a bus service to start near your place. So the, the challenge was that if you don't have proper paved roads and if you have very narrow roads, how are you going to then have a service to pick up people and to take them to where they want to go? So this today forms, in Kigali at least, it forms what I would call paratransit, whereas people who don't want to walk uh, can pick up a taxi very close to their home. Actually, if they want, they can go to a bus stop and get off there and then take a bus and then get off and again take a bus for the a, a motor taxi for the last mile. So it's basically what we call paratransit. It's a feeder. But given traffic in every city, and Kigali has very light traffic, even then they find that the motorcycles, uh, being narrower, can squeeze through traffic and are much faster. So if you call someone and ask them to come by bus, typically you're talking about an hour, hour and a half. You ask them to come on a motorcycle, it's five to ten minutes. So it makes a big difference in the amount of time that you spend actually on the road. So my wife and I actually spent some time um, in Kigali, you know, took at least three or four of these rides. And you're absolutely right. I mean, in fact, the vibe you get in Kigali because of these, you know, these two-wheelers, weaving through traffic actually reminds me of a recent trip we made to vietnam and um yeah so it occurs to me you know that this might be a problem you you might invariably end up solving elsewhere as well but let's talk about why this particular use case in the kiga in the sort of uh, rwanda's context is is important and and landmark in some respect Okay, we need to basically go back a little bit to try and understand. What you very rightly said is that, you know, maybe other parts of Africa, it's even considered illegal. Uh, you'd be surprised to know that in Rwanda, they actually did declare it illegal. And they, No way! Yes, they did. And they tried to take them off the road, but it lasted only a few weeks. Because imagine there are 20,000 motor drivers in Kigali today. An average number of rides taken are 30. So that's 600,000 rides that's over half a million rides a day in Kigali. So you can imagine Kigali moves on motors. If you remove the motors, Kigali would come to a standstill. But having said that, there was a huge challenge as well. Because imagine when you have so many number of motor drivers, and if they are not authenticated and verified, you're going to have crime, you're going to have accidents, and you're going to have rash and negligent driving because they're all vying for the same customer. So there was a huge problem and uh, the police actually wanted to take them off the road 
because they considered them to be a nuisance. They had a very bad reputation. But the president, Paul Kagame, said no. This is an opportunity for employment for the youth. They say tackle the problem that you have with technology. We just happened to be in Africa at that point in time. And when we met all the stakeholders, I asked them, what's your biggest pain point? And they said, motorcycle taxis, they're a menace. And I said, okay, hold on. But if you remove them, what happens? City comes to a standstill. So what do you do? So we basically then looked at uh, what the motorcycle taxi industry was about, how it was controlled, how it was governed. There was a there was a hierarchical structure which had been created by the government, not owned by the government, but a federation, unions and cooperatives. So we went and met all of them. Then we met all the members of the motorcycle taxis. Then we actually took maybe 1,600 rides on motorcycle taxis just to be able to get the average of the fare charge for different places at different times of day. And what was the kilometrage to say, is there any sense or is it just arbitrary? And what did you find? Um, actually, that the motorcycle driver, because of a lack of education, works with pure absolutes. So the moment you go above 8 kilometers, it would typically come to a 1,000 francs, and he would be very happy. So if you went 18 kilometers, he would still be happy to settle for a 1,000 francs. Guess why? He could buy his beer. So the challenge was that uh, to be able to look at the fact that haggling, uh, non-standardized fares, and uh, foreigners being ripped off, all of this was one challenge. Yes, so I can attest to this because I'm well aware that a local should cost about 300 francs. And, and really, no one was willing to help my wife and I for anything less than 500 all day yesterday. Yeah, so if you can't speak Kinyo Rwanda, then that's the challenge. But the starting fare here up to 2 kilometers is 300 francs. And if you basically were to use a Yego motor, then you have a fare meter. You can just tell them, look, I'll pay by meter. And if he uses the meter... The government has just announced that it's become compulsory. We've just got our license last week. So far, it's been run as a POC where we had 630 bikes outfitted. Now we are going to complete the 45,000 in the next nine months. So it's going to make, it's going to be a game changer. But the reason why I think it is very important for Rwanda is that we addressed all the security issues, all the speeding issues. And all the other problems that were there with haggling, lack of change, wasting time. And like I mentioned in my presentation, the one key objective of Yego Moto is to give these guys who work very hard for 10 hours a day a credit history. Let them go back to a bank, get a loan and find another business and exit this business. Because there are far too many people. If you talk to local people here, it's a love-hate relationship. They call them, they're like flies. But they can't live without these flies too. So the question is, bring about visibility, organize them, bring about structure. And like you've seen now, we've got cashless payments. So you can just tap and pay for a motorcycle. So we've got many firsts in the world. But the beautiful part about this is, is not all the nice helmets and the GPS and the device and the training. That's one part of it. 90% of it is like an iceberg. And that's our platform which basically runs and monitors all of these motors in a real-time basis. And that's where the secret source is, and that's where we have spent a lot of money and time developing things. And so I want us to drill down on this a little bit because, I mean, you spoke earlier, I, I, I uh, facilitated a mobility panel, which you were a part of, and what's interesting to me, observing you know, your hustle, quote-unquote, your, your business, relative to, say, the big-name brands like Uber and Taxify and those kind of things, 
I think you have in common being a platform player that is about far more than what we see, right? The motorcycles, the colors, and the, and the helmets. Um, but it occurs to me that the likes of Taxify and Uber are, are essentially just getting money up to wait it out uh, and hopefully be one of the sort of three or four major platform plays globally. Um, and, and that's the play. I wonder, in observing how you've approached this problem, you've definitely you know, decided to sort of focus on the public-private partnership piece of it. How key has that been to your model, and, and, and how do you factor that into your platform play relative to what's out there? Um, like I mentioned in the opening remarks of my presentation is that one of the big things about being successful in business is to find a problem, but then to find a problem that's solvable and then for it to be simple and scalable. Now, if you're an Uber, I frankly don't understand why a company that makes losses quarter after quarter is valued at $68 billion. I mean, I'm probably old school, but I just don't understand the maths. Now, if you're going to buy your drivers by paying them money or you're going to buy your customers by giving ultra cheap rides that are below cost, you don't have a viable business. You might have today a belief that you have a valuation, but I don't understand what, what the basis of that is. We operate in the real world. So when we operate in the real world, we said, look, there is a sensible way to do it. If you look at Uber, Uber got kicked out of London as well, right? So Country after country turns up against Uber. Why? Because Uber then believes that once it owns a market, it can run roughshod over the drivers itself. But that, I think, is an unfair model. That you seduce the driver to join on the platform, and then when you've actually got enough of them on, then you kick them out. I mean, or you basically charge them a higher fare. Or turn on profitability by charging a small. We see you, Uber. It's 21 rand uh, for your minimum fee. It was 20 just last year. So we see you, fam. Yeah. So the, so the challenge here is that if you look at it from a government perspective, what does a government want? A government wants fair play. It wants transparency. It wants to be able to also like, imagine you're a telecom service provider. It says, sure, come and get a license and operate, but operate in a transparent and fair manner. And if you step out of line and if you charge very high rates, we will force you down. So it should be the same for the transportation sector as well. It should be a fair price for the passenger and as well as for the driver. We are just an enabler of the technology which enables this fairness to come into play but gives the government a huge amount of visibility. Now what the government can do is to take this knowledge and to be able to create a lot of value out of it. For example, imagine like in a city like Kigali today, we would be able to provide average speed of traffic, origin and destination points, density of traffic. So imagine tomorrow if... They citizen surveillance? Uh, well, citizen surveillance in the sense... I'm being cheeky here, of course. Sure. I mean, I mean, we should, I think, address and answer that too as well. Uh, what's very important for citizens to understand is that when you have a problem and you go crying to the police or there's a crime that's committed against you or your family, at that time, then you will whinge out and say, government doesn't help, there's no law and order. But if the government puts into place a system that actually has the ability to go back and to be able to track things and like our platform, even with a small sampling of 600, has helped recover motorcycles, phones, forgotten objects, stolen objects, uh, has sorted out because we can identify each and every trip. 
no one, I think it's stupid for anyone to believe that the government in any country has the time to sit and look at each and every ride and to say, hey, wow, you went there at this time. No one has the time and no one cares. But yes, if an incident occurs, if there's a terrorist incident or there's a serious robbery or, or there's a catastrophic Definitely a government should have the ability to be able to go back and look at the big data. So big data are normally provided by us to the government is anonymized. But should they want to go back and look at a specific incident, I think it's well within the right. Now, in the private-public partnership, the difference between an Uber or uh, Grab or whatever is that we work with the government. So we tell the government exactly what all we can do from a technical standpoint. The government tells us what are their pain points, and then we bring all of that into the platform. The government benefits. So that iceberg that you see, 90% of it is a huge amount of big data and value back to the government. So the government says that, look, hey, we want this. So we are willing to legislate it and make it mandatory. So this is the first country in the world that has mandated it and made it compulsory for every motorcycle to have a meter. And look at it, where, where is Rwanda going with it? Rwanda has got foresight. Rwanda wants to go cashless. Imagine if the market has 4.5 billion francs a month, right? In just Kigali alone, how are you going to go cashless if one of your main reasons for spending cash requires currency notes? But we have gone cashless. So the moment we have outfitted in the next three, four months all the bikes, it can be 100% cashless, just like Kigali has done for their buses. And so it occurs to me that, uh, you know, your, your business model is fascinating. And the, and the likes of SAP, Cisco and IBM listening to you going, hey, that used to be our job, everything he described. And so when you, you and your team sit in your boardroom and, and sort of cast your vision, what sort of parameters do you put in terms of what, what's possible? And I mean, with Amazon being this huge, setting this huge precedent for like what a monster platform can be across tons of different verticals, what are your aspirations as a business? We are building a platform and we're very clear about that. For us, uh, Yego Moto is going to be a very small part. We want to be the enabler for M-Commerce. We want to be able to help a small enterprise, but also individuals, professionals. I mean, whether it's a mechanic, electrician, plumber. I have suffered here because I didn't have the number of a plumber. And for whatever reason, most houses in Kigali have a pressure pump. So if a pressure pump knocks off for any reason, you can't even take a shower in the morning. So now there's no system here where you can call anybody and get someone. So we said, look, we're not going to start off to be the Amazon, but what stops us from listing all of these handymen and having a 24 by 7 call center where we can connect them to the customer. So someone calls us up and says, listen, I need a plumber. And we said, what do you need him for? He said, I want to fix the wash basin. So we said, okay, there are six guys who can fix the wash basin. Three of them are free. These are their star ratings. This is how much they charge. He says, okay, I need one. What time do you need it? We call up and ask the plumber, if he's free, the plumber says, yes, I can be there at 11. We send a motor to pick him up, drop him there, and get him back. But we guarantee the payment, and we guarantee quality of service. So now, suddenly, what you've done is you've created two motor rides for the motor industry. You've created a job for the plumber. You've eased the, uh, you've eased the pain point of someone wanting to get service in their house from a plumbing need. And you basically started to build now an ecosystem which is even beyond Amazon because now you're focusing on services. But 
The same platform has a REST API, which we have not published yet, but we can, which will allow anybody and everybody to plug in. You have Jumia. Jumia has 40 motorcycles. We're going to have 20,000. 20, Do you need to have 40 motorcycles of your own? Maybe not. You want to start a courier service tomorrow. Why not plug into our system? We don't want to do every business. We just have that ecosystem of verified drivers who've got smart devices. So just supposing you want to deliver a package or a document, now you can tell us, we can come and pick it up. But today we can run the service as a demo, as a proof of concept. But tomorrow you can start a courier company and say, listen, I want to be able to plug in, to be able to call drivers on demand. Can you have a system for them to then get a sign-off and send it back to me? Of course, we can do all of that. It's only technology, right? So we want to be the enabler to help all of these guys. So the first level is urban. But very quickly, we want to go to rural because we want to bridge that divide because we see that Kigali and Giseni and the other big cities have a completely different lifestyle than the rural folks. And I feel very strongly that, no, uh, they need to be empowered as well. And so I'm wondering about this value that you're creating for, this, for the drivers. I mean, you, you articulated it earlier. There is, there is a rub, though. I mean, ultimately, the government would love to see none of these on the road, perhaps. And I know the story you tell, and, and I believe it. It's not that I, I distrust it, but is that as this works better and better, I mean, you're empowering these guys in ways uh, that they weren't empowered before to leave being Bora Bora drivers and, and, and be, you know, become something else and do something else and access credits and, and open up their lives in ways they couldn't do before. Um, however, they are surrendering quite a bit of their, you know, personal information. There's There's a sense that you know, this industry really is being nationalized in a sense. Um, how do you navigate those issues and also communicate the value and also really, in, you know, the, what these drivers are giving up and gaining in participating in what you're doing? I would say that uh, the motor industry has always been a national industry. It's been run by individuals, but there's been a structure in place. There's a national federation. And then there are unions and then there are cooperatives. And this is the structure under which, the ages under which it is functioned. The regulator played a role where all the motorcycle owners who wanted to use it as a taxi had to be registered and had to pay a fee. But the motorcycle drivers themselves were under this loose affiliation of, uh, you can say, cooperatives. That cooperative structure, unfortunately, wasn't very efficient in percolating data up or in even being able to manage the requirements of these people. So the government is seen through that. So it's always been a national asset. Now, the question is that how do you use technology to leverage, to bring it all up? The drivers are the ones who are begging us that, look, why don't you start a Yego Moto Federation or a Yego Moto Cooperative? We will all join you because they can see the level of efficiency when they come to us and they say, look, I have a challenge. Can you bring something up? I'll give you a simple example. We go by meter. So if you want to go to a faraway city here called Giseni, uh, it's about 154 kilometers or whatever. Typically, the round trip is 30,000. A lot of smart guys started taking the motors from here and going all the way there on the meter where it costs only 18,000. So the guys came to us and said, hey, listen, how can we make money if you're going to go for 18,000 and I'm going to come back empty? So we said, you're right. If you're going on a long distance trip, you must be compensated for it. But I said, what if you start to abuse that and run around in Kigali and charge someone an extra fare? So we thought about it and came up with, okay, as long as the trip is above and beyond, say, 20 kilometers, 
uh, approval of the passenger to be able to call it a long-distance fare, where we put on a surcharge so that he gets compensated for even driving back empty. So we solved the problem. The drivers were shocked that within a week they had that. They said, you know, people take us out shopping and make us wait, and there's always a fight. I asked you to wait for five minutes. No, no, you, I waited for 15 minutes. So we said, okay, we'll put a wait meter with a charge on the system. Again, another week later, the, the, it was there. So when, when the drivers can see that we care about them, when the drivers came to us with the biggest pain points and said, we have this problem with the government, can you help us? We took the problem to the government, and the government said so. If they come onto your platform or they have a similar platform, and there's no monopoly for us, but we are the first ones off, off the bat here. But if anybody else can create an equivalent platform and the motorcycle driver comes and gives up his visibility, it's great. But see, these countries have got national ID, 100% of them, right? They have the, mo- the motorcycle licenses, they're all smart licenses. Everything is digital and available in Rwanda. Either we can digitize it or we can dip into other databases and verify it, but it's all for the benefit of the driver. So what is he really giving up? He's giving up how much he drives, where does he go, what speed he's driving at. That's for his safety and security. It will drive down his insurance rates. Plus, God forbid, there's a calamity or an accident. We can send help to exactly where he is because we've pinpointed his location. But look at the other thing we bring for him is we're giving him a credit score which he never had. He could go, if he went to any bank and said, I'm a motor driver, I want a loan, except for microfinance, which charges, again, very high rates, they would shut the door on him. Karan, this has been a highly illuminating t- uh, chat. All I have left to say after thanking you um, is Uber Go, Grab, and the others, your move. Absolutely. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, uh, one thing which I think is going to be there, certainly for Africa, is that it's not, a, it's not a marketplace where you can replicate an Uber model. Or even where you've seen an Uber model, there have been problems. Even it's there in, in Nairobi and it's there in Kampala. But there's a challenge and what's the uptake of it? But when you come to Bora Bodas and when you come to working with these people, people can blame them and call them mafia and whatever else. But they're all hardworking, needy guys who want to earn a living. You know? And if we can use technology to provide them with that platform, why not? And if Uber and uh, Grab or Gojek want to come into the market and play with us, welcome. One of the most obvious things I should have asked you, you're in Kigali. You obviously do not sound <laughs> Rwandan. Um, and, and of course, you're not. Where are you from and how is it that you've come into you know, pursuing this, this, this venture? And, and, and how is it that you seem to approach this particular problem quite differently to a lot of the people I speak in this, in this space within mobility? I've been born and brought up in India, and uh, I still have uh, ties and roots and family in India, but I had moved to Singapore and then set up a company in Singapore and was working in that company and then made a visit to Africa, uh, to Transform Africa in 2015. Was uh, very enamored by the conversations that were taking place, by the openness, especially of the local government, by the just the atmosphere of the place. And I said that, wow. Well, of Kigali specifically? Did you come to Rwanda for your first trip? Uh, first trip, yes. I, was in, I, I came to Rwanda and uh, I was at Transform Africa. And just the sheer openness of governance and how easy it was to talk to a minister or to interface with the head of an organization, uh, it was breathtaking because I come... <clears throat> 
if you look at India, I mean, India is you have to know somebody who knows someone to open the right door. And of course, if you're 1.2, going to be 1.3 billion people, you know, there are the odds of knowing the right person uh, a tad low. Yeah. But even if you know the right person, the fact is that, you know, there are a zillion of you trying to do the same thing. So it gets tough. Here I found that uh, this is a country which is pretty open about what they want, unabashed about it, and open to have a discussion. I mean, you could WhatsApp a minister and ask him, and you get a WhatsApp response back. You say, uh, sir, I'm in town. I'd like to meet you. He said, how about tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock in my office? In which country can you WhatsApp a minister without having met him before? Just get his number from, say, hi, I'm Karanveer from this company in Singapore. I'm in town. would like to meet you. Tell me how many countries will a minister WhatsApp you back? Virtually none. Yeah. So Rwanda has that. Okay. So that's what basically got us here and got this conversation going. And then, you know, the other thing that was really cool that we, you know, you said off mic, um, the story about a driver that used to drive for you here, went to India, started driving for Uber. I thought that was really illuminating. Well, that was actually a driver in India. It was oh, a driver in India. It was a driver who actually used to work for my father and he left saying that I've got a much better offer. So I thought he'd got a job. Maybe I needed to increase his salary by, you know, $20, $30. And he said, no, I work for Uber. So I said, bully for you. I said, how much do you earn? He said, I guaranteed $100 a day, even if I don't get a ride. So I said, but how does that work? I said, that makes no business sense. How can Uber guarantee 10,000 people in Delhi that they will pay? He said, no, but they do. Uber was taken off the road by the government for three months. They paid these guys while they were sitting at home. $100 a day, effectively. So this guy went and thought that he did a gold mine. He bought three vehicles. He hired drivers. So he became a businessman. And he'd made this huge investment. He was paying the bank back. But guess what? A couple of months later, Uber turns the tap off. Now Uber doesn't pay you unless you actually have a ride. So oh, in other words, like, they actually have to be a business now. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. So I, I guess someone realized that, you know, burning uh, half a billion a quarter is not good business sense, even if you're valued at 68 billion. So Uber turned the taps off. Now, this driver's got bankrupt. He's sold his three cars. He doesn't have a job. He's, in fact, looking for a job now and is thinking of selling his house to pay back the bank. So when you'd have a very big company with no soul, uh, I think you have a problem. So this speaks to, again, one of the, you know, something around like the future of mobility. Um, again, something we didn't touch on, even on the panel, didn't have some, enough time. Half an hour is not even nearly enough. Where's this whole trend going to leave people? You, you know what I mean? Like if, I don't want to say if tech has its way, because there's obviously people behind tech. But you've just demonstrated by that story that often the people behind tech don't have the heart for the people. So are we, are we right to worry that... Um, you know, titans of industry, you know, who are shaping the future of, of, of mobility uh, and, and, frankly, the gig economy are, are going to one day hold us for ransom? I actually fear uh, artificial intelligence and uh, the onset of artificial intelligence and replacement of human jobs uh, much more. And I think that's going to be a disruptor that a lot of us haven't seen. And we can play ostrich and say, no, 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 it's not going to come to Africa. It's not going to happen. But I think we need to be very, very careful because I don't know. Uh, I still have my bank accounts in Singapore. But the last time I walked into a bank was probably six years ago when I opened the bank account. I never go there. So all the jobs of a teller and for everybody else that's in the bank, my question is, I've never seen them. Why do I even need them?
right? So imagine that hap going across all the different verticals that we have. Africa can't afford to have that. Imagine that you have the tech to have self-driving cars. What happens to all the drivers? So what we need to do is to basically take it a little bit slowly and in terms of basically introspect and to see do we need to just go out and embrace tech you know do we need to really go out and say that 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 tech is the best thing in the world it may not be we may not be prepared for it it may not be right for us but yes green tech like solar is an absolute it must be brought in one of the things which i mentioned but i was being cut short because obviously you know time over time over like they were showing you also absolutely was the fact that uh, i wanted to speak about i said that the biggest i mean I, th- i think the best way to stay i'm not from harvard or stanford i've learned business the hard way by walking the streets and figuring things out right so one of the things was that how do you keep yourself uh, you know from uh, being displaced by someone else and i said you have to keep disrupting yourself you have to be able to turn pivot quickly so we said okay we have got this now but are we going to rest on our laurels and said oh we put a meter on the bike no 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 we already engaged with countries which want 1.5 million meters can i put the same meter no no one is going to give me a billion and a half dollars to put that in right so how are we going to do it we have to rethink and recreate provide the same facility and provide it these are petrol bikes am i going to want to have petrol bikes being driving around for the next few years no you come back to transform africa we will have fully electric trikes not tuk tuks trikes enclosed trikes why we bring trikes in here because it rains here all the time when it rains the motorcycle industry stops so i look at it from a point of view not that we won't make money but the driver doesn't make any money the passenger can't go anywhere the city comes to a standstill so can't there be a solution to it are we going to have to put buses in place are we going to wait 5 years for buses to come in place and a bus doesn't solve the problem today you want a pod you want a small pod that can take one to two people you may want a bigger pod to be able to take eight people you want electric shuttles you want to have point to point shuttles you want to basically create a feeder system so yes you can have the hyperloop happening in dubai or in london or in uh, los angeles we are not ready for the hyperloop we don't need it but what we need is safer cleaner greener ways of transportation where human beings are still employed and involved and then there was something that um you were about to say you you know you it occurred to you that you hadn't shared something that you would have liked to say it was about this green tech and about us bringing electric vehicles in here and the challenge again for electric vehicles is that i i i hear in africa and i consider myself to be an african i don't know why because if i wasn't i would have gone back to singapore right so something clicked and it's not just rwanda i just fallen in love with uh, the continent in our history books it we, we used to call it the dark continent that was the only chapter on africa i'm talking about early 70s but as far as i'm concerned the lights have been turned on and the lights are very bright right so that's why i'm in africa but if you were to look at africa and protecting our environment the idea is that we should learn from the mistakes made by the west and by other developed countries instead of following them on the same path of destruction and then coming like oh we destroyed the habitat you know we don't have any animals left we have no forest left we poisoned our land we poisoned our air what can we do no stop it now i think some of the some of the the, the more ardent proponents of 
forgive me, capitalist, weirder forms of capitalism, uh, doctrines of capitalism would, would accuse you of, of almost being a tad socialist and almost uh, problematically implying that perhaps um, governments should be playing a much bigger role in ensuring the long-term sustainability and well-being of citizens at, at large. Is that part of your thinking? or it, How do you arrive at the way you think? Being that you're a businessman and to, to you know for you know for all intents and purposes a, a, a capitalist, I don't consider myself to be a capitalist. Really, yeah. I consider myself to be a human being. I'm a human being who's interested in solving problems for other human beings. If I make some money doing it, great. If I don't make any money doing it, also great. It's I'm not. I I don't think that I am personally not driven by money and. The, if this company is ever driven by money, I will never be a part of it. I, I'm making that as an open statement, right? Wow, okay. okay. Uh, I think as human beings, I think, I think we have forgotten the second word, which is being. And a lot of the times I see that uh, the government thought processes of even the leaders who are supposed to lead us somewhere is uh, caught up in aping and doing what I call a copy-paste of things and policies which will not work in the long term or the short term. You've got, we, we discussed it inside, that you've got this changing thing about suddenly, um, you know, five years from now, having 600 million people qualified but no jobs. What are you going to do? More important is how are you going to feed them? Okay, but which, which president of which country in Africa is talking about it? You don't have water in Cape Town. It could be a weather problem, right? But the fact is... It's a planning problem. It's actually a planning problem. But so if so planning, imagine planning for jobs. So imagine you have people who don't have jobs, they're not earning money, and then they don't have food, and then they're hung, hungry. What are you going to do? What's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? What's your 20-year plan? What's your 30-year plan? If you, if you head a country, you should be thinking about this, right? So my concern is that I don't see people thinking about it. And if I don't see people thinking about it, I see people giving permission to other people in the government to find uh, shortcut measures. Okay, we need food security. What are you going to do? Let's put in chemical fertilizer. Does anybody understand what chemical fertilizer does? No, no, we'll put in chemical fertilizer. Of course, for a few years, you will get a higher rate of crops. Then what will happen? Your biomes will disappear. You'll, you'll get plant disease. Then what do you do? You'll put pesticide. Hey, great. Guess what? Now what are you eating? You're eating pesticide. Your cancer rates will go up. Are you able to, you can't cope with basic health care. Now you want to have cancer in your society, which is today not such a big problem. But you, but you look at India. Look at where we went from 1970 with that short uh, dwarf two rice or wheat, sorry. We went to monocropping because it's so easy to grow. Then what do you do? You grow one kind of crop. Then you want to feed everybody the same thing. So everything made out of wheat, pizzas, burgers, bread, something not alien to our diet. So what Diabetes, yeah. So what do we become the capital of? Cardiovascular disease and diabetes. India is today the capital of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Do you want to go down the same path? Africa, you eat so many different foods. Your starch comes from so many different ways, no? You, you don't eat, you, you haven't, your, your refined bread concept is what, 20, 30 years old? 
why are you giving it up? All your millet and sorghum and all the other things, you're giving it up and you're going to kill it all because you do crop rotation, which the elders have been doing, but that's all going away. So it's got nothing to do with mobility. But my question is, there are a thousand questions to be asked and no one today talks about the fact that we are educating our children to stare at that small screen. And what happened to African storytelling, looking under the stars, sitting under the stars, lighting a campfire and having a conversation and learning from elders? It's gone. You try to have a conversation with someone even in your office, within a few minutes the phone will come up and they're not paying any attention to you anyway. But that challenge today is something that we are inculcating right from childhood into our kids, that the kid is crying, misbehaving, here, take my iPad, take my phone, shut up, keep quiet. And then you see couples going out for dinner, I don't know, it would be nice to go and photograph some people on Valentine's Day today, to see couples going out for dinner, glass of red wine in front of each of them, and they're only on their phones, and then they turn, smile, and maybe, maybe share something. My wife is sitting behind me and says, you do the same. Not true. <laughs> my word look i mean so we turned the, the the turn it back on and we were going for close to another you know 15 minutes but i don't regret it at all it's really been fun chatting your the way you think is is just refreshing um taken from someone who does a lot of these um interviews has really been uh, quite a treat to to speak to you and i'm really i'm really keen to see how this platform uh, your building pans out and, and how it takes on some of the problems, at least some of the, the complexities of life on the continent as we enter this digital age. So once again, thank you so much for being on the African Tech Roundup. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.